0: Hi, everyone. This is going to be a really fascinating one, particularly for women who are feeling separate from and alone right now, because we're talking with one of the stars of the show that's been really popular over the last couple of years called Alone, and we're talking with one of the participants that made it 73 days in the Arctic. We're going to talk to her about it, but this is really more of a spiritual conversation because it has to do with the nature of femininity and how we not only survive, but as she calls it, thrive. (laughs) And how we can find that if we can reconnect with nature, no matter what, we're never alone. So without further ado, let's go to Wania. Hi, Wania. It's so good to see you.
1: Hi there. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: I love it. Do you know that you're only about as the crow flies 25 miles from me or so?
1: I I grew up spending time in Loomis because my stepmother worked at the vet clinic there. So yeah, it's fun talking to someone who's in my own backyard.
0: In our backyards. And so I recognize your terrain and we're in, we're that little neighboring town. It's not even a town really, Penryn right next to Loomis. (laughs) And it's, we're lucky for both of us to live in such a beautiful part of the world in nature. And this is what serves you. So, Wania, if you could tell us a little bit about just the background before you ever ended up on the show alone, what was it in you and what you'd been doing your entire life that would have propelled you into such an audaciously challenging journey?
1: Thank you. Yeah, great question. You know, I definitely, I grew up uh, in the environment you're seeing back behind me, so in the Sierra Nevada foothills, and I grew up hiking in the Sierras with my parents all the time. My mother was in the Sierra Club and grabbed me backpacking, and my father was an endurance runner, so I grew up getting dragged to aid stations, helping support these people who are doing these amazing Physical feats uh, hundred mile hour you know hundred hundred mile runs within twenty four hours and and the like so um, being really immersed in the natural world was just a given for me it wasn 't something that I ever had to choose, um, but it was definitely where I found myself and um, there 's never really been a time in my life that being outside and curious about and engaged with the natural world wasn't wasn't a big part of what I was doing and who I was
0: I can understand that you're so lucky you actually grew up around the Nevada City area And I'm seeing that big giant um, granite boulder behind you because they're all around here And for me to go out and sit and meditate I, There's a little rock between two big boulders and at, at a sanctuary near us out in the field um, there's something that is so mystical and grounding. You could be anywhere. You could be in England, Wales. It, it feels like Welsh land to me. And something about the groundedness of this particular land really feeds a soul, and not everyone has access to that grounded kind of land. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Let's just hop right into how you ended up on Alone <laughs> and so- what your experience was.
1: Well, my experience was absolutely incredible. I mean, I've done a lot, of, a lot of things a lot of people would consider pretty adventurous and out of the norm, um, but that was the most extreme thing I've ever done. And in that way, also just the most profound and life-changing in so many different ways. Um, but how, how I came to be out there is, since I was 19 years old, I've been really immersed in the world of primitive skills, or I prefer to call them ancestral skills. Um, I started going to gatherings where folks come together and teach these skills. And so I was uh, I was just after my sophomore year in college when I first became introduced to this community of folks who share these skills. And it was just a natural fit for me. And at the time I was in college studying biology and environmental studies. And to me, it was just such a beautiful dovetailing of my different interests between the natural sciences and being engaged in botany and mammology and, and really engaging with the natural world and that way and using it so kind of the ethnobotany and, and engaging in terms of getting my own life needs met with the natural resources and the knowledge of those resources and with my own two hands. And so I'd been teaching in this world since the late 90s and, you know, as there became more and more interest in, in survival type shows and such, I started getting a lot of requests for these different shows because you know, I have a bit of a name having been immersed in this, in this world for the last 25 years, but most of them seem staged and forced and most of these shows have the exact opposite take on quote survival that I have, which is that the world is out to get you and that it's up to us to grit our way through it and push and man versus wild and person against nature and this and this very antagonistic way of going about things. And I had zero interest in any of that. And when Alone approached me, it happened to be at a, at a time in my life where I was really looking for the next step and wanting to reach a lot more people and, and inspire in different ways than I had been doing with my teaching to that point, and I had never pictured myself being on television, but the fact that it meant being out there on my own and filming myself rather than having a crew and rather than having it be, you know, a little bit... Um, manipulated behind the scenes was really appealing to me. And it felt like an opportunity to bring this other perspective. And as you said in the introduction, a more feminine perspective to this idea of, quote, survival. And I don't like using the term survival. I like to use long-term wilderness living because survival implies that we don't have a place in the natural world and we don't belong there. And it feels really, really important to me to share the opposite message and that we came from that place. It's part of why we are the way we are. I mean, our very cells, our DNA, our our senses, the reason we have hands that look like this and function the way these do, these are all because of this long evolutionary history of being a part of the natural world. And it's just in very recent history that we have this skewed idea that it's out there and separate from us. So I wanted to be a force bringing that consciousness to the world. And this show seemed like a wonderful way to do that and also an absolutely amazing experience and a way to put these decades of studying these skills to a real test.
0: You are absolutely infectious <laughs> and brilliant. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I just love the way you're putting this because what you're saying goes far beyond a television show. It goes into the new model of how human beings need to start coming together. So let's talk about the show for just a moment. And I have to say, <clears throat> I do not watch reality shows because I do not like the message of competition and one winning over another and right and wrong. It's, I find it highly uh, depressing and offensive to even view life like that in a competitive way. agree, and life. I don't
1: like it when people refer to the this competition I was a part of because that isn't what it felt like to me. It was about being out there for as long as I could, and if that happened to be longer than others, so be it, but... Yeah, I was in a very different reason. I yeah. love it.
0: Just give us give us an idea of what happened over those days. That's a long time. You were dropped in the Arctic. You had very limited supplies. Tell us what it was. Tell us what it was like. Tell us the most stunning opportunities of it, <laughs> and also tell us the most challenging moments of it.
1: Yeah, well, that's a that's a huge topic. And I actually am working on a book about my time out there now. So that's going to be a much a, a better way to get a deeper window into that time. But yeah, it was it was pretty extreme. It was amazing. Um, so we went in in early September, but and we were technically just south, we are about 70 miles south of the or 70 kilometers, which is less miles south of the Arctic Circle. So we we're technically just subarctic, but but, um, you know, a very a very extreme Arctic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so uh, we were dropped by helicopter in a spot that wasn't of our choosing. Uh, It was kind of randomly selected who went where, and the spots were very different in their resources. But of course, you don't know that when you're out, because it's just you having your experience, and it'll be, you know, almost a year later that that it's shared with the world, and that you get to see where the other people were, because you have no idea when you're out there. So dropped by helicopter, in my case, on a pretty barren rock peninsula, um, which was sticking out into Kunede, which is the Dene name for what what colonizers know as the Great Slave Lake, which I think is a really, really unfortunate name that I try not to use. Um, But... The idea is that you you are out there for as long as you can be out there, and you get to choose 10 items of gear, and there, it's not any items that you want. A rifle, for example, is not one of the options, Um, so they give you a list of about 50 to 60 items, and you can choose 10 of those, and only two of them can be food, and if you choose those, it's only two pounds of food per item, and if you're choosing food, then you're giving up something that could potentially bring in a lot more food for you, like a bow and arrows or something, so very, very limited gear, and your clothes don't count, so you're you're allowed to bring clothes, and they give you a list, you know, two sweaters, and this many pairs of socks, and two pairs of underwear, and um, but Really, you're out there uh, on your own to make shelter, bring in food, tend to your needs for as long as you possibly can. And in my case, that was about 10 and a half weeks.
0: Let's let's have you go first off with perhaps the most overwhelmingly stunning moment in time that just froze for you. Because there had to be a lot of them. Maybe just Mm -hmm. pick one or two of those because we're going to go into the consciousness of it all deeper into this conversation. We will go there. So kind of toss it out off the top of your head if you want to.
1: There are so many spectacular moments, but Perhaps the most stunning and life change moment, and I might even start crying as I talk about it, was one of the days towards the very end of my time. And, you know, I was was starving, deeply starving for most of my time out there. And I didn't have any deep water in the site where I was. You couldn't leave the spot they gave you. So it wasn't that you could just wander and go to where the resources were. you you were within certain bounds, and the bounds I had happened to be in an area with no deep water. So that meant there were no fish, and I'd been counting on fish as my main calorie source. And I was on a barren peninsula. There were some trees, but it was mostly bare rock. And so very little game, no big game on my peninsula, and no fish. So I was just crossing my fingers hoping that I, I would hold out, that my body weight would hold out until the ice came and the lake froze over so I could wander out on the ice and get to the deep water where the fish were. And by the time that happened was about nine weeks in, and I was very low in body weight, and they come and do medical checks every so often. had been telling me, it's not looking good. You'd better start eating soon because we're going to have to yank you if If you can't put on, if you can't start eating. And so I knew that the lake ice was my last chance. But we had a big storm where the ice went from about three inches deep at the surface and not deep enough to stand on out deep. And then three or four days of brutal temperatures and howling winds where it would have been unsafe for me to go out onto the ice. By the time I was able to get out and the storm died down, the ice had frozen to almost two feet thick. And I didn't have an ice auger, I didn't have a hatchet, I didn't have an axe, I didn't have any good way to get through it. So I was beating through it with the back of my saw to try to get through it. So the most spectacular night was this night that I went out to try to get through the ice, and I hiked out probably several hundred yards from the shore to where the water got deep, and it was sunset, and the colors were spectacular. The whole sky, just fiery reds and pinks and oranges. It was amazing. And I'm there trying to chip through the ice. And I reach that moment where I realize that it's never going to happen. And my last shot at food is basically basically shot. And in that moment, the gratitude for being in that place, for making it to where the the ice came and the heart of winter and the beauty of being so far out on that ice and the red and the pink in the sky reflected in the ice all around me and just at that moment the moon started to rise and it was a perfect half moon and it was so exquisitely beautiful that in that moment i didn't care about not getting through the ice and i didn't care that my chances at food were gone. And that meant I was probably going to have to leave soon because having been out in that wild, incredibly wild place right in that moment felt like the hugest gift of my lifetime. And I felt like if I dropped dead of starvation the day after, I wouldn't care because I was so blessed to have had that just, I mean, like breathtaking doesn't even begin to describe it. And there's something that happens with deep starvation too, where you're just so raw and open and vulnerable and living on such an edge. You're just so keenly aware of absolutely everything. It's like your vision is clear and your senses are all clear. And that sense of longing in your body is it just tunes your awareness in, in an exquisite way. And that's why people fast on spiritual journeys. You know, if it's really a deeply religious experience.
0: I, I was, that was the next question I was going to ask you exactly that. How does that fragility and vulnerability feed the experience? Because it wasn't just you. The other women had to have been starving as well for the most part. Maybe not yeah. as badly as you. Maybe they had more resources, but it's almost baked in the cake there.
1: Well, one woman was pulled for, for weight, and, uh, and they would have pulled me. I actually left the morning that I knew they were coming to do a medical check and would have pulled me. I didn't know they were going to pull me, but I was like 98% certain because I saw the writing on the wall and saw my ribs poking through um, and knew it was close. So both of the other women out there my season, and, and many of the men, had pretty intense physical experiences, um, so... Yeah, Uh Um, and it happened that none of the women on this particular season were in a location that had any fishable waters. And two of them are fishing guides. You know, it's their living to find fish. And what did you eat?
0: What did you? You mean you? you lived? You had? I
1: I mostly starved. Um, I ate cranberries, and I brought one food item which was two pounds of pemmican and I made that pemmican last I ate my last bit in the morning they came to get me day 73 so what that looked like is a little bite of pemmican about that big every three or four days Um, and I did I did some hunting with my bow and some trapping but I did not bring in very much there wasn't very much game where I was so uh, about 10 rabbits and 10 squirrels in 73 days And a lot of cranberries and really not much else. Teeny, like a handful or two of blueberries, but it was already hard frost by the time we got out there and the blueberries were totally on their way out and what there was were shrunken and fermented.
0: It's painful to listen to, yet the exquisite nature of your experience is, it's, it's incomprehensible to us who haven't done that.
1: So <laughs> Well, and I never thought that being that hungry for that long would be sustainable or be a beautiful experience. I mean, it, it was hard and it was uncomfortable, but none of the challenges could hold a cal- like candle to the amazing gifts. It was so much more beautiful than it was hard or painful.
0: I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to Insider Commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. Let's talk about the whole nature of how you approached it because you decided you weren't just going to survive or even sur-thrive, you were going to find joy in all of the challenges. And I can see just looking at you and listening to you, you're you're such an incredibly kind of whole vivacious human being. I can see where that would have been your goal. That's not generally how people approach the situation, as you said from the very beginning. You weren't going out to master nature. Let's talk about the deep, deep implications because I think our society at large is sitting on the threshold of this right now. We have a choice to make. We can continue to exploit, dominate, control, exert brute force over one another, whether it be personally, uh, individually, uh, or in um, even in our larger political environments, for example. Or we can learn the very thing that you have really mastered. Let's talk about collaboration and cooperation with the world with nature with each other and 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 the more the takeaway spiritual implications and necessity for us to start bringing this in now
1: Yeah, absolutely. That feels really important. And those, uh, I set really firm intentions and had a lot of practices in place in mind before I ever went out, but also very intentional practice of being there in collaboration and reciprocity with, with the environment before I went out there. So there are a lot of things that I did towards that aim. And there was something about being out that long that you know, before I went, it was very intellectual. Think, okay, I'm going to sing the sundown into the lake every single night. I'm going to have a dance party every week, which I did every Thursday afternoon. I had a dance party out there by myself on the rocks and it was amazing and it was part of that expression of joy. And I I told myself, if I'm not loving my time out there enough to be able to dance about it at least once a week, then I don't belong out there. Um, So those were all kind of my ideas and my practices that i had going in and that i followed through on but something that i wasn't expecting was the degree to which over that amount of time not taking in anything but the food in that environment and the little bit of pemmican but pemmican is a very very wild oriented food too it's a mixture of dried meat dried berries and a little bit of animal fat Um, so the the disconnect between myself and the environment itself really started to fade for me such that you know I started off kind of asking permission of trees before I cut them and thinking about what the landscape needed before I cut down trees for my shelter you know asking the tree if it was okay finding the areas that needed the most thinning spreading out my impact and it went from an intellectual practice to just feeling the land asking me and directing me to what was best to where like if I went out looking for a particular resource it just kind of popped into my vision and volunteered. And I really came to, to feel like not only was I a part of the landscape, but I was a part of, I was living as my ancestors had and I was in deep relationship with ancestors. I was feeding them with every time I got food and in conversation, but I became my ancestor. I became my own ancestor out there, if that makes sense. I felt very aware of living in this unbroken lineage of people who had lived exactly that way and recognized that, you know, in the old stories, like, Rabbit was the grandfather and the daughter and everything, not seeing the separation between ourselves and the other animals, and then it went deeper to not seeing the separation between myself and the plants and the trees, and then not seeing the separation between myself and the rocks and the lake and, you know, the sky itself, and this was on a really visceral level because, again, starving for so many weeks and having my only nourishment be from there, my body was made of that landscape. It was made of those plants and those rabbits that, in turn, were made of those rocks and that water. And it was so profound. And it's hard to verbalize now because when you're out for so long, you lose, you know, you're not I was talking to the camera, but not having human contact and speech, your mind starts to work a different way. And so even, even applying words to it doesn't really quite hit the sensation. That of it.
0: makes sense. But it sounds as though what happened is your intuition, your native raw intuition really started coming to the fore and guiding you and including the ability to commune with your ancestors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Is it
0: is that something you were able to continue or sustain after that journey? Once your body was nourished again, did did your openness to all start collapsing back into our everyday reality, or did did, did you bring part of that with you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it certainly shifted. Uh, it's it's hard not to fall into old routines. Um, that said, I mean that journey. Changed me deeply in ways that i can 't see ever changing I mean to actually know what it is to be on the edge of life and death in the ways every other animal on the planet that isn 't domestic already does um, that is that is a type of knowledge that that isn't just going to go away, and you know i don't take things for granted the way I see almost everyone around me taking for granted, right? Because the things that we complain about, the little problems we have, and especially in, you know, in the U.S., in the first world, I mean, they're so nominal. And you get that when you have gone for weeks not knowing whether or not you're going to have any food the next day and when it's 20 below and you need that food to keep all your digits intact, you know, it's just yeah. an entirely different thing. And I think our world would be so much better off for everyone having a little bit more of a sense of what's really important in life and what to focus on.
0: I couldn't agree more. And it's uh, taking away all the subjectivity of life. Everybody, well, you're out doing that, everybody else is pointing fingers at each other. The media is screaming at each other. You know, families are arguing with each other because the world has become highly subjective. And there, there's no right or wrong, it sounds like. Either you merge or you don't merge.
1: Right. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting to me, and I didn't, I didn't know this until after the show came out, and I was able to watch other people. But we were all out there at there the same time, very similar environment. Some people had had more resources than others, certainly, but we were experiencing the same, the same climate and the same conditions. And some people were just absolutely suffering, and I was having the time of my life. And that just shows how subjective our everyday lived experiences and the degree to which. It is what we make it, and you will find whatever you're looking for. And that's what I thought of when you were talking about, you know, bringing a different attitude to a survival experience. If you go out there expecting to suffer and expecting it to be hard – that's what you're going to experience. And and you're going to focus on those things, and you're going to multiply them by your focus. But when you're looking for the joy, and you're looking for the gifts, and you don't feel entitled to any of the things you need, then everything that comes your way is a tremendous gift, and you have so much gratitude for it. And that completely changes your experience in a very real way. And in fact, physically, I should not have lasted as long as I did. I did not have the food to have the levels of energy and the level of joy and activity and staying warm. I mean, it's it's absolutely wild that I didn't have more issues with the cold. And I made most of my own gear with natural materials, and that's part of it. But, you know, with the number of calories I was taking in versus I was putting out, it's clear that there was something else going on. And I feel like I was really fed by the beauty and by the gratitude, pure fed presence. literally.
0: Yeah, pure spirit, pure frequencies, and literally sharing and absorbing with one another. It's just, it's uh, it's breathtaking listening to you. <laughs> and uh, thank you for all of that. And now I want to talk about something that takes us into the modern world, the the world that is much more conflicted in a certain way. And we're talking about, right now, while we're still in the midst of COVID. uh, Some people watch this months and years down the road where that will have passed, but it'll still be in their memories, where a lot of people have been isolated and kept from one another and have this overwhelming feeling of aloneness. And as you said, even when you're alone, you never have to be disconnected And so let's explain that a little bit more. And then I'd love to have some practical ideas of for people and a lot of women watching this that are feeling isolated and alone, how you can re-engage and be enthused as you are uh, with connection with nature in particular.
1: Yeah, great questions. Um, So... Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is the show is called Alone, and I was out there on my own for 10 and a half weeks, and I never felt lonely. I, I was all prepared. I have a, a dear friend who works with trauma therapy and nervous system regulation, and he gave me all of these exercises to use when my nervous system was freaking out from the isolation and I never needed any of them because I did not feel isolated. I was so engaged with the environment. And I should say that I'm a naturalist. I I have a master's degree in environmental science. So I have a degree in botany and I've deeply studied the natural world. So in that way, I have have this level of engagement and curiosity that, that is automatically at play when I'm in wild places. So that really helps me feel more engaged and more connected. But also there are very specific practices Like, for example, literally talking to trees out loud or to anything out loud helps us feel less alone because we're using what's called the social engagement muscles. The muscles in our eyes and in our brow and that nod our head are literally hardwired to our heart, and it helps our heartbeat stay calm and regular when we're using our social engagement muscles. So going out and actually talking to the trees before I cut them and engaging with the little gray jays that come down into my camp, that actually Helped my nervous system feel less alone. So it's both, you know, it's both intellectual, but it's also very physiological. That connection to the world keeps you from feeling alone and isolated.
0: I love that. I love it. And that's one thing in my own life that I always have had an affinity for. Um, I've always said I'm kind of like my little Bichon Frise, little white fluffy dog. Throw me out in nature overnight. We'd be dead by morning because I just don't really, I, haven't, I don't have a lot of experience with living in nature. As much as I camp and like being in it, I don't know how to survive in it. But the one thing that I've always had is this connection with trees uh, listening to them and talking with trees and that's so true what you say uh, in my own experience when you go out and you're out there um, speaking with this tree it, it's like well for me it's like they, they, it will respond to you and talk back and share things with you did you have any of those experiences where you were hearing from the stones or from the rocks and the trees uh, without it being a flat-out hallucination?
1: well yeah that's a great question it's certainly not in the form of like actual voices or hearing but i had a lot of moments of feeling that that deep intuitive call towards something and then having the thing so one example is looking for trees for my shelter um I think it was in the 30s, I was still working on my shelter and I was trying to spread out my impact and and harvest from different places, which used a lot more calories than just staying close and chopping all of the trees around me, but was important to me. And I had in my mind that I wanted to cut trees from this certain grove, but then I just felt this, no, you need to go up to this certain place this certain rock ledge which was further and not particularly convenient and it was getting dark but i did that i brought my saw and i went up there and i i asked which tree was was willing to volunteer itself and one did and i cut it down and as it fell i saw an arrow that I had lost weeks before uh, was lodged into a tree just above it that I never would have seen if I hadn't cut that one tree. So things like that happened that weren't being spoken to, but these they were these synchronicities and coincidences that really felt like they were deep messages and and that place having my back.
0: Absolutely, just clairsentience, they can call it. You just knew, you knew. You know, um, one of the things you say you teach, you teach uh, you teach about um, sewing with um, buckskin and learning how to tan to make your own leather clothing and, and other things. And one of the classes you teach is on how to listen to birds, which I'm particularly fascinated with. And I thought, if you do a bird listening class, I would love to join in with you because there's, to me, nothing as magical and such high frequency as bird song. And we're surrounded by every kind of bird. And I always say, I wonder what they're saying to each other. Can you give us just a little, kind of a little, really quickie mini uh, lecture on when, when you're hearing birds distressed versus just happy and excited, for example? And I know each each uh, variety bird is different.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. But honestly, there are a lot of patterns. So birds yeah. aren't that different if you really tune in because when we talk about bird language it 's not actually about what individual birds are saying or knowing the song of a particular bird it 's about knowing the difference between when they 're in what we would call a baseline behavior where they 're comfortable and they you know they 're not under threat and those are things like singing and feeding um, versus when they 're nervous and agitated and there 's something going on and those would be alarm calls, so a lot of birds have a song well songbirds have a song and a call and really it's so intuitive because, and and then I should say too and there are a lot of other behaviors that aren't Auditory at all, but we call them bird language because the birds are telling us what 's going on with their body language, with their acting, and sometimes silence is the clearest message of all. It means that they 're hunkered down because they 're under threat and they don 't want to advertise where they are to a predator, be it you know a cat or a mountain lion or a hawk or something. Um, but the interesting thing is that most people can actually tell the difference between an alarm call and a song if they allow their bodies to feel it, because we are tuned, our nervous systems are tuned to be paying attention to what's going on in the world. And the types of noises that birds use to signal danger is similar to what mammals use, and you'll feel it in your chest if you're paying attention. As you say, the songs are this high vibration, and they kind of tell you that everything's okay. But when all of the songs stop, everything else in the world out there Is going like this and paying attention and when they're shrieking it tends to be high pitched and regular and intense and it makes you wonder what's going on there's something in your system that wants to be going like this and often we don't let ourselves because because it's not cool because we think that we're more sophisticated and civilized than that and we shouldn't have to worry about what's going on in the world around us because we're just that entitled Um, so but if you let yourself get into that feeling body then often often you're gonna know whether that's baseline and everything's okay or whether that's something to be afraid of because you're you're gonna have your shoulders raise a little bit if it's an alarm did you have any birds when you were up there i mean it was getting toward the winter You had
0: birds, plenty of birds?
1: Yeah, I mean, a ton of birds were flying south. All of the waterfowl flew south within the first, I would say, three weeks of me being there. But there were a lot of songbirds, Um, not a lot of variety, but a lot of quantity. There were were chickadees, which are one of my favorite birds in the world, and it was amazing to have. There were gray jays. There were birds that I didn't know who they were. I called them zoinkers because that was the noise they made, zoink. Doink. but I found out later that they were called red Um There were a little bird that clearly seemed to me like a Junko, even though I didn't, they looked different than our Junkos. Um, so there were a regular cast of characters. And I had one day that because of that bird language and paying attention and knowing the voices of the birds, I heard a big alarm happening. And I went out to this clearing of rocks and I saw an amazing, huge raptor that I would never have seen because it wasn't anywhere near my shelter. But I heard that something big was going on and I saw that. There were great horned owls. Uh, so yeah, and there there were grouse. I didn't see very many grouse, but I did. Um, one the, the second thing that I got with my bow was a beautiful spruce grouse. So there weren't very many where I was because of this barren peninsula, but um, they were around.
0: So I'm glad you had some company. So yeah. let's kind of wrap this with looking at someone who doesn't have the advantage you have. They don't live in a beautiful place like the Sierra Nevada foothill. And say you're a city dweller, and they're listening to you, and they're just getting excited. And uh, can't necessarily hop on a plane because, first of all, Americans aren't welcome in too many countries right now. That'll all change soon. But that's how it is now. People feel like they've had their wings clipped. So what would you tell a woman who's listening to you and just feeling the rush in her body, or a man who's feeling the rush in their body, they've been closed up too long, what what would you tell them to do right now to start connecting again?
1: great question, and this comes up all the time, because I've been teaching online courses since the start of COVID, and I have a lot of people in cities in my courses, so I I would recommend you to to look into some of those practices, and I have courses, specifically one called Connection is a Survival Skill, with tons of resources for feeling more connected, but the two things that I always encourage people to form more relationship with are plants and birds, because those can be found almost everywhere. Even in urban areas, there are cracks in the sidewalks, and grasses and dandelions coming up. And a lot of our most common weeds are either edible or medicinal and both. Dandelions have an edible green and a medicinal root. so do a lot of things that you can find in abandoned lots. And you can learn a lot of botany just by learning to identify common weeds. If you have access to a city park, all the better. You can take it that much further. And then also birds, because they have wings, so they can get Everywhere. There are birds. There are peregrine falcons nesting on skyscrapers in New York City and San Francisco and elsewhere. There are pigeons everywhere. There are all kinds of songbirds, even in a lot of really urban environments. And, and you know, having access to birds on the wing and to the sky, right? So there are a lot of things happening in nature that no matter what we have access to, if you can look out a window, you can notice the clouds moving by. You might not be able to see the stars because of light pollution, but you can see the moon and you can track the phases of the moon and watch those cycles, you know, the sick Little sickle of the new moon to the full moon and and back again, and recognizing how that shifts and changes and how do you feel a little different during the full moon to the new moon. There are all kinds of ways that we actually have to work to keep the natural world out, right? We have this idea that we don't have access to it, but connection to the natural world is our birthright. And we we do all of these things to close it out, concrete walls and heaters and electric lights. All we have to do is turn off the electric lights and we get very in tune with what's happening in the world outside. If we can step out onto a balcony wherever we are even if it's the balcony of the stairwell you're going to be able to see birds you can go out and sit for half an hour every morning and track the changing weather patterns track the clouds track the birds around you notice what fall looks like versus spring and the different shades of green it's always available to you wherever you are and we have computers and we have phones and we have ways to, to tie in even to places that we don't have access to physically
0: Thank you for that. Any final thoughts before we go? And first of all, I want to find out what's the best URL for people to find all of the classes and tell us, we've talked about birds, we've talked about connection, we've talked about sewing with natural hides. What else do you teach people? And then give us your URL.
1: Great, yeah, so so my website is buckskinrevolution.com and I teach my classes through the Buckskin Revolution Academy and I have classes on, basically I teach everything related to ancestral skills and land-based living and off-grid and homestead living. So I teach, you know, wild foods and food preservation, living without refrigeration, um, all kinds of fiber arts, wool spinning and felting and basketry and hide tanning and hide sewing, a lot of focus on food, clothing, and shelter, because those are the three things that almost everyone needs in their daily life. And I'm all about integrating these skills into our lives as they are now, rather than feeling like we have to run off into the wilderness and, you know, survive on our own in order to access them. So it's great to be able to do that, but that's not long-term sustainable for most of us. So what can you do now to bring some of the outside in, right? Those are the things that I teach. Um, Also, I'm on Patreon, so that's a way to be a little bit more plugged into what I do. I have two books that I'm working on now. One uh, uh, narrative memoir about my time on a loan and what brought me to that, and then one on sewing with buckskin. So kind of the, the philosophical and the practical application. So, so many different ways for people to plug in and learn more about me and what I offer but all of it can be found at buckskinrevolution.com
0: well thank you so much for sharing your spirit with all of us today I think you're my new hero I don't <laughs> have a lot of those skills I have some of them but not many <laughs> I, that's I, that's so, By oh, I just love what more. you do I love it.
1: One one thing, too, if if there's time, you you asked me, you know, what's my take home message? And my take home message is that you don't have to go out for months in the wilderness by yourself to feel more deeply connected or to practice some of those skills that you evolved to do. You wouldn't be here now if all of your ancestors hadn't excelled at living in the wild and having it be beautiful and fulfilling and joyful not just a struggle, right? We are a product of millions of years of evolution that created a being that is perfectly at home in the wild. We just have to remind ourselves and we just have to bring some of that into our daily lives wherever and however we're living them right on (laughs) thank you for that message
0: thank you for this entire time together i'm just i'm excited you i can see you get people excited because you're (laughs) connecting them to something so primal in themselves that so many of us have lost touch with so again Wania, thank you so much for taking the time here and uh for sharing this experience And, and it got me choked up when you were talking about the starvation moment and how beautiful it was and uh most of us don't do any more than a little intermittent fasting. There's a challenge for you.
1: <laughs> Great. Well, I did intermittent fasting for years before going out and starving. It was really helpful.
0: As <laughs> yes, I'm sure it was. Thank you so much. I hope to meet up with you again in person. Okay? That would
1: be lovely.
0: I would love it. Thank you again, Mania.
1: Thank you, Regina. Yeah.
0: So everybody, you just heard Monia, uh, her website is buckskinrevolution.com. So for right now, most of her classes are online, but again, down the road here, you're going to be able to come out to the beautiful Sierra foothills and uh, do these things in the flesh. So until next time, thank you so much for joining us here on Meredith.com.